Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Um, so my name's Daniel Fadovich. Uh, I'm a long-time emergency physician at Royal Perth Hospital Emergency Department. Um, I'm also head of the Centre for Clinical Research in Emergency Medicine based at the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research and also Professor of Emergency Medicine, University of Western Australia. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> well, I didn't add in adjunct Professor Curtin University. <laughs> <laughs> you could have kept going. <laughs> okay, well, welcome to uh, This Emergency Life. We're kind of a newish podcast, been going for a few months now. Um, I wonder if we could just jump into some questions. Yeah, sure. Yeah, great. So, look, um, uh, the NEAT targets, the four-hour rule, we're kind of about eight years into fully adopting those in Australia. Um and across EDs and while there were a decent amount of kind of op-eds and studies done at the beginning around uh, the four-hour rule uh, and its effectiveness to address access block and so on, um, it's been relatively silent other than kind of, you know, conversations and discourse amongst ourselves. Um, it's been relatively silent in the literature. Um, but recently you and your colleagues have been reporting on um, outcomes from the four-hour rule. Um, do you think you could tell us about what you found and what this means to us going forward? Yeah, I can do. Um, seeing that this is a podcast for this emergency life, I'm going to just step back from that question initially. I will answer it, of course. Um because, uh, you know, I'm in the sort of final stages of my career and I've thought of how each decade of my working life there's been something that's really been the standout in that decade in the emergency department. So in the 1980s, I would say, was thrombolysis for acute MI. In the 1990s, I would say, was the introduction of non-invasive ventilation, like things that really made a big difference to our practice. In the 2000s, I would say, was the introduction of care coordination teams, like having a team of physios, OT, social workers, etc., in the ED, really made a massive, <clears throat> massive difference. And then when you come to the, the teams, um, that's where I think the the four-hour rule, National Emergency Access Target, really has been, to me, the standout uh, feature of, of that decade. And I can already tell you what the 20s is going to be. It's going to be COVID, but that's that's a different subject. So it is something that both personally and professionally and internationally has had a big impact on our practice. And... and um, I've been uh, in a group led by Roberto Ferrero <clears throat> at the University of New South Wales, which has done a fair bit of research um, across uh, several states looking at uh, the performance and outputs, outcomes, etc. <clears throat> so this it's a really, I think, by way of background, it's fair to say that emergency departments are really complex places operating within an incredibly complex sophisticated system and there are sort of there's a complex web of interrelated issues and dynamic interdependencies so um, 
just really want to highlight the complexity of everything. But getting down to some specifics, you know, there's no doubt that the introduction of some kind of time-based target has led to improvements in patient flow. And, and I mean, I don't think anybody's going to dispute that, um, you know, patient flow is important for both the function of the system and it's also important for patients as well. And um, in Western Australia, seems to be associated with a mortality benefit. Uh, we couldn't find that mortality benefit in the other states we looked at, which was New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT. So that's an interesting and important differentiator and we might talk later about why that may or may not be. Um, we did also look at um, what the staff thought about it and their sort of their perceptions and experiences. And, and um, I think people don't often articulate the idea that how staff perceive and experience a policy change is actually a really important and useful measure of the introduction of that policy. And not surprisingly, there was a range of uh, um, experiences uh, uh, sort of reported to us. And this ranged from uh, sort of def definite benefits in relation to access block and patient flow. And, but also sort of the, the impact on stress and morale in staff um, in, in sort of busy departments and, um, and, and an impact uh, on education and training with, uh, with actually quite a spectrum of responses into those issues because while um, sort of the majority said that there were some adverse effects in relation to some of those, um, some people reported beneficial effects. So it just reflects the, the complexity of the issue and sort of the heterogeneity of different departments within different hospitals who will have applied different approaches to this. So maybe I'll stop there for a moment and see what you want no, to ask. No, no, and that's certainly been my experience when um, we 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 started different different interventions and different approaches to our models of care when when we roll this out um, to, you know to begin um, I could see significant benefits and then as time wore on we started to get um, different issues popping up with our staff around um, how they perceive the care of the patients all of those sorts of things but then I actually started oh you know big to begin, I went, oh, finally, um, the whole hospital is embracing, you know, access block as a, as a, as a, a you know, sy systemically. Um, and it's not just ED's dirty little problem anymore. It's everybody's problem. But then as time went on, I also started to see problems where the block had actually just moved to a slightly different part of the hospital. And, you know, we were trying to rush patients into beds that didn't actually exist just yet and those sorts of things. Yeah, look, these are perennial <coughs> problems. And really, I think you could summarise it by saying um, overall demand for emergency departments and acute hospital services is on a steady increase but the capacity of the system um, 
is is at best stagnant and 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 in some areas is certainly um, there's there's less capacity in the system and, and and the one group that I would highlight that in particular is obviously for mental health patients. Mm. So, um, what did you did you get any findings from your research around mental health patients? That's our next paper. <laughs> so um, you'll have to wait and see. Yeah, no worries. No spoilers. Fair enough. <laughs> no spoilers. No yeah, spoilers. exactly. But but I think you know anybody who's got experience in yep. the ED and mental health patients won't be too surprised at the kind of things that exactly it, it, it would find. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, well, we'll look out for that. Is that um, is that under review at the moment or? Uh, it's, still, it's still in development and uh, yeah, right. we've got a draft manuscript. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, look, I won't dwell too much on stuff that you can't talk about because that's a bit unfair. Um, I, I do notice that... Um, uh, you have done quite a bit of work around uh, alcohol and illicit drug um, presentations to the emergency department. It, my experience of drug and alcohol has been that presentations were kind of heavily weighted towards people who were alcohol affected, far greater than methamphetamines, for example. Um, but obviously, there's all sorts of things that, you know, that uh, there's all sorts of dependencies there. For example, you know, where your emergency department is and, um, you know, whether that's an area where methamphetamines or other, other illicit drugs are used. Um, you've done a significant uh, uh, um, amount of work around illicit drug use and alcohol use as it relates to emergency care. I wonder if you could share your thoughts on this. So um, we do see a lot of alcohol-related presentations and we see a lot of illicit drug-related presentations. And my experience over the decades is that this is an anecdote, but my impression is that it is an increasing problem. But I guess we don't have any hard historical data to sort of quantify that. Um, in recent times, um, I was involved with our college's alcohol harm and emergency department's uh, project, which was led by Diana Edgerton-Warburton. You probably know Diana. And um, so we started measuring the proportion of alcohol-related presentations. And, um, you know, it's a pretty significant proportion overall. In our binational study of Australia and New Zealand, it's essentially one in 10 patients are alcohol-related. Um, and that's a massive uh, proportion. And I did some um, costing, um, health economics costing data for our department. And if you sort of translated that across one in 10 patients across Australia, basically the numbers come out to about a half a billion dollars a year, which is a massive, massive impost on the health system for something that is largely preventable. Um, so the other issue is illicit drugs. Now, a part of the problem with measuring and quantifying the proportion of illicit drug-related presentations is that the... Um, ICD-10 coding systems are pretty useless for recording the use of illicit drugs. 
Um, and we've just done a little bit of work on that over two years now. And so our um, patient information system we use is EDIS. Um, and, and we basically found um, that a bit over a third of our illicit drug-related presentations were actually recorded as such on the system. We also found specifically for meth, because um, our our system has a built-in system flag on, is this a meth-related presentation, which is activated by the use of predefined codes. And again, that according to our data, that only picks up 60% of the true cases. So the whole system is geared unfortunately, towards under-reporting. And it's pretty hard to advocate for the um, the magnitude of an issue if it's heavily under-reported. Um, so that's been a particular um, um, soapbox issue for me in, in, the, in the last couple of years. And certainly in our department, we found that about 7% of all of our presentations are illicit drug-related presentations. Yeah, right. So is the Royal Perth, um, I don't know Perth that well, I've only been there a couple of times, but is the Royal Perth uh, in the central business district? Yeah, so it's on, the, it's, it's on the edge of the central business district with a major um, nightlife area uh, close close by and, and you hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> the the, the flavour of your ED presentations does to some extent reflect its location in the community. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the given that it's one of your bandwagon things, what, what, what do you suggest we do about this? Um, so the first thing to do is actually measure and define the problem. So earlier this year or late last year, we published our audit um, of illicit drug-related presentations and also compared our audit with what the system said so we had some comparative um, disconnected data and I've just had accepted for publication another similar piece which just came up with the same result again. This time it's a comparison of, um, by pure chance, the audit is a comparison of during COVID times versus pre-COVID times. But because it hasn't been published yet, I can't, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I can't tell you all the details. He's a, he's a man of many secrets, <laughs> no, <laughs> and he's no. about to reveal all. <laughs> well, it'll, it'll come out in the literature. Yeah, of course, yeah. You've got a, a really broad range of clinical and research interests by, by the look of it, um, and it seems that the Royal Perth have really hit the kind of the sweet spot for bringing emergency processes of care and research back together in in uh, the Centre for Clinical Research and Emer- Emergency Medicine. Um, it's quite unique in the Australian emergency setting. I, I haven't worked anywhere with anything quite like this um, embedded. Um, perhaps you could tell us about the centre and what's happening at the moment. Do you want to hear a little bit about how it actually happened? Yeah. Or- I think so, yeah. yeah. So it was established in 2008 and in the sort of, I don't know, a year or two before that, um, our emergency department hit quite a nadir of, of senior staffing for a range of reasons. 
and the hospital executive at that time, um, amongst other um, strategies, decided to sort of basically support an academic slash research unit uh, as an attraction and retention issue. And the centre was initially established by Simon Brown, um, who headed it, who was the founding head for about six years, I think. And then I took over in 2014 when he, he moved on to, uh, to, to, different, uh, um, to a different job. And, um, and so, look, so it's a, an interesting and unusual mix of some academic emergency physicians, research, some research nursing staff, and also a scientific laboratory where um, a scientist can actually do um, molecular um, assays to study some of the mechanistic processes behind what we see clinically. Um, and that is probably the biggest unique factor. And on top of that, physically within the clinical emergency department, we actually have a wet lab. So because some of the, the blood samples especially um, require some special preparation um, to, for them to be processed in a proper laboratory controlled way. I, I'm not a lab scientist, so that's, that's why I fumble a bit on, on, on those bits. Um, but having that embedded staff and processes is really unique and interesting and gives us the opportunities to do things that not many other groups can which, for example, includes our critical illness and shock study, which was set up by Glenna Rents. And um, so, you know, people talk about having blood samples in patients who are critically ill, but it might be blood samples in people who have spent hours in ICU or on the wards days after the onset. And, and, and we've got a biobank of over a 1,000 samples of people who have been critically ill, but, like, it's from when they arrived in the ED. So that's actually, a, I mean, I call it a bit of a gold mine of, um, of, of scientific possibilities. So that's sort of some of the general background. In recent times, um, and we've done lots of different uh, research projects, but we've kind of sort of streamed into two main areas now. Um, so one is to do with illicit and emerging drugs. And the other area is sepsis, which is led by Stephen McDonald. And um, Stephen and some others have just got a big MRFF grant to do the Arise Fluid Study, uh, which is a um, going to be a clinical trial comparing liberal fluids and later vasopressors versus restricted fluids with earlier vasopressors. Um, and people will hear about that in the second half of the year. Yeah, so I'm hearing a, a lot recently. We're coming back to which fluid, how much fluid, um, again and again and again, and it seems to just go on decade after decade. It's a bit of a perennial problem, and I guess when you have perennial problems like that, it usually means there is no clear-cut answer or there's probably no big difference as a general principle. But at the same time, though, in some of these sort of <clears throat> critical illness 
clinical trials, the capacity to do those types of trials has really kind of grown and evolved a lot in the last decade or so. So we've got a better ability now to try and answer some of those questions than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. So with the center, you mentioned that you've got some um, you've got some ED clinicians and you've got some ED nurses working in there as well. Does that mean they have um, split their EFT to work across both areas? So they've got a, a joint research and clinical role as well? Yes. So it's a bit complex and variable, but yes, we do have some nurses who, who like do one week research, one one week uh, clinical. Right. That that's fantastic because that, that that's not something that's that's convention around other EDs or even the world of nursing. Yeah. Look, stuff. it's it's it's. I think it's a great career opportunity for for nursing staff, and and with self interest in mind, the good thing is when they're on their clinical week. Obviously, they have a much better awareness of the studies that, that are going on. So that is a bit of a win-win from our point of view. Yeah, so you get that championing yeah. as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Can we move into something slightly less um, highbrow, high uh, into something that I became aware that you were doing just recently? Um, and I, I want to introduce it in a slightly odd way, if that's okay. okay. Sure. Um, Many years ago when I was a a younger ED nurse, um, I kind of came to the realisation that it was um – it was there was little point in me discussing my world, my workday world, what went on, because to anybody who didn't work in the emergency care setting, because there was no context, and trying to give context to it became laborious, and uh, I just gave up even talking to my family about it, which is not ideal because you know you need to uh, de 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 stress and debrief somewhere in the world. Um, but because there was no way of me giving good context, I, I just stopped talking about it, you know. For example, people would say, oh, you're an emergency nurse. You have, must have lots of really good stories. And i go, yeah. And that was it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes, so, yes. Yes, um, I've had similar experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, I recently became uh, aware of some of the work that you've done, and it's probably not why you did it. Um, Through a a mutual colleague, um, Associate Professor Gabby Brand, who is a couple of doors down from me in her office, Um, and again, I don't think it was the aim of your videos, but you've put together some videos that shows the life and the 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 patient's journey through an emergency department. Do you want to tell us a little bit what they are? I'll link to them in the show notes and what how they came about, what the aim of those is. So I've always enjoyed art and have increasingly enjoyed that um, through my career uh, because when you're involved and in, engrossed in mainly beautiful visual art, um, you kind of go into a different zone. So, like in the ED, the ED is like it's busy. There's never enough space. Um, there's sounds and smells, and you know what it's like. Um, and 
And a line that I've used is that it's filled with urgent and defiant badness. Um, when I go to, I an, think we have a show title. <laughs> but when I go to an art gallery, and I've been to a lot, and like I just enter this other world, this beautiful contemplative silence, and it's it's a really powerful experience. And then in um, 2012, our college's national conference was in Hobart, and the convener Jeff Cowser. Um, uh, established a conference and the theme was essentially art and emergency medicine. So I said, um, I'll give a talk on art and emergency medicine, which I ended up sharing with Michelle Johnston. And um, I thought about art and when you think about art and medicine uh, and you see paintings and there are a range of paintings, um, they don't, I can't, I just could not see how one, a still picture could actually adequately portray what we do in the emergency department because EDs are just so complex and sophisticated. So I thought that uh, the thing to do is to create a video. Um, isn't there that old line, if a picture's worth a thousand words, then a video is priceless? So... Uh, I managed to team up with a guy called Steve Wise who works in our hospital's medical illustrations department and he's a really super talented videographer. So we worked together. So I had this concept in my head of what I wanted to portray in the video and um, and he was able to deliver the technical and also the creative side of it and, and we ended up producing video called The Art of the ED. Um, so when you think about it, um, there's a unique and special artistry of emergency medicine. And some examples include like the slick resuscitation, the clever clinical reasoning, the relief of suffering, the teachable moment for both patients and staff with my research hat on, the fascinating research. And then, you know, as you mentioned before, sharing experiences with a colleague or simply just caring enough to do the right thing by the patient. And I wanted to capture that in a video and you said you have the link to the video so people can watch it, but it was really um, well-liked and loved by, by, by the audience and many people have seen it now. And um, like all art, the more times you see it, the more, more that you see. One of the things that I liked the most in terms of feedback is when lay people look at the video, they reliably comment that everything looks so calm and controlled, which is actually not the usual perception of the ED because people um, commonly perceive EDs as chaotic places. And, and I really rally against that description because I do not see it like that. I think that's a very, very superficial interpretation of what we do. You know, no, exactly, because we, we, we're we all about control. If we don't have control, then th that we're not doing our jobs, right? That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so for me, the, that video portrays, to some extent, how I perceive emergency departments 
and how I wanted to portray my perception to to the to the world. And then so that video was focused mainly on patience. Um, and people can watch the video. Um, and when I was doing that project, um, it gave me the idea for another talk and video, which was to do with time. And, and we don't have the time to get into a lot of detail. But in 2018, so six years later, it took me six years to kind of work out what the next focus was. And so I created another video, Time Travel in the Emergency Department. And that video was focused a little bit more on the staff rather than the patients. And I, I gave a talk about it and talked about the idea that we actually do a lot of time travel in the emergency department um, and probably don't have the time to go into a lot of detail in that. But but that's really sort of the, the, the background to those two videos, especially the first one. Yeah, and 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 they're gorgeous. They they they. I've I've showed them to a number of non ED people, um, and it really does. It gives you an opportunity to kind of bring other people into your world and see it the way you see it, rather than the way they see it. So you know, when people come into an emergency department, they see lots of activity, and it must look like bedlam, whereas actually it's quite a controlled situation. Oh, it's, 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 it's this beautifully conducted orchestra um, and what we do is amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's that's another show title. Right <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, I won't keep you too much longer unless you've got – is there anything you have on the boil or that you'd like to spruik at the moment or raise people's awareness about? Uh, look, the only other thought that I've had is that um, – because I rather like videos, in 2018, you, I'm sure you know our college held a mental health and emergency department summit. And so I created another video, well, two videos actually, but one, the main one was recreating the, the, the disgrace of mental health patients spending days in the emergency department. So we had somebody who acted as a patient stuck in ED for days on end. The staff were fantastic and just contributed. And we basically compressed uh, four, four days into about three and a half, half minutes. But we filmed that right inside the ED with everything else that was going on. Going on. Um, and and I'm, I'm quite pleased that that we could achieve that in, in a pretty short time frame. You know, we had a makeup artist to change to change the look over each day to give it more authenticity, and and it had quite a powerful impact. And I know it's been used many times to show to you know ministers of health or ministers of mental health, so they can actually see what it's like. Because it's very easy to be a little bit abstract about patients spending days on the ED. Uh, but you actually need to see it and feel it, so it's a, so it's a bit more visceral. Well, that sounds like another one that um, I'd, I'd actually don't have a link to that. But if um, if I can get the link, sure. I'll put that in the show notes yep. as well, and people can have a look. Okay. Hey, 
Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure. I won't keep you any longer. Um, I do feel like we've probably got more to talk about in the future. Fair enough. Um, how's everything going over there with with COVID at the moment? Your well, we feel really sorry for yeah. you guys over in Melbourne because you're everybody over yeah. there is just doing it so tough, and it would be better for the country for your state to be in a better better uh, situation. And, and I'm, I'm sure you'll get there in time. We're incredibly fortunate in WA. Um, our government decided on an island within an island approach and a hard border and mandatory quarantine for new people coming in. And I think yes, as of yesterday, we only had two active cases, both in quarantine. So... Um, I'd rather be in our situation than yours, but, you know, this has still got quite some time to pan out. Yeah, good good on your Western Australia. You've really got to keep that up because, yeah, you're right, it, it doesn't feel great being at this end of it. Um, and all of that preparatory stuff that we did, changing, slightly changing the waiting rooms and the geography of the ED, it's actually game on now. So, um, but look, uh, that's not the way I wanted to finish off. <laughs> Our chat, um, it, it has been delightful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And perhaps we can catch up with you again when we're on the other side of this this plague. <laughs> yeah, oh, thanks so much, Cliff. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting to you and um, I, I hope your podcast keeps on climbing in, uh, in followers. <laughs> we'll see how we go. Thanks. Thanks very much, Daniel. for listening in just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers the music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and the millions um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places if you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. <laughs>